uh, in Ezekiel is you have Ezekiel giving uh, three pictures where God is trying to show uh, who we are, where we've come from, and what God is doing about our circumstance. Uh, Ezekiel 16 is another brilliant picture of the gospel buried here deeply within the major prophets and probably not a section uh, that you have quickly looked at. I can guarantee it's not a section quickly preached because it's a pretty graphic chapter as God needs to express to us the severity of our sins so that we can appreciate how glorious the, the gospel is. And so we're in this section of the of these pictures. You might remember from last week, you had God using a picture of a, a useless vine to try to give the image of who we are. Jesus capitalizes on that image, uses it in John 15 to describe our need to be joined to him if we're going to be useful and fruitful in service to God. In Ezekiel chapter 16, uh, this might be a, a way to address how the Apostle Paul gave a prayer in Ephesians 3 that he wanted Christians to know the love of Christ that surpasses uh, knowledge. And this image, this 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 picture certainly attempts uh, to do that as God is going to try to show the gravity of our disgrace and then ultimately how he is going to bring about that deliverance. Let's note um, the image of, of God and what he does here. The, the first 14 verses of, of, e, of Ezekiel 16 is, is a story of Israel's history condensed. Uh, it is looking at Jerusalem in particular as a city, but more particularly as the people of God. It opens by describing in, in verse 2 and saying about Jerusalem and no, making known the abominations. Uh, you have in verses 3 and 4, your origin and your birth was in the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite. Your mother was a Hittite. And as for your birth on the day when you were born... Your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped with swaddling cloths. No, I pitied you to do any of these things to you out of abundance for you or out of compassion for you. But you were cast into an open field. You were abhorred on the day that you were born. This this is the, the start as God describes essentially Jerusalem and the people as nobody cared about you. It is described as, a, as an infant being born that is rejected by the parents and is cast into the field. And that's the image that's here. No one wanted to cut, cut your cord. Nobody wanted to wash you. Nobody wanted to swaddle you. Nobody wanted to keep you. They just cast you aside. And I want you to notice that this picture of abandonment and, and uselessness that no one cared about you. You were ultimately rejected, abandoned, and nothing. But in verse 6, there's the picture, but I passed by, and when I saw you wallowing in blood, I said to you, in your blood live. So here is this picture that no one had regard for you, but I'm the one who came along and saw who you were, saw that situation, saw you were abandoned and rejected, and I said the words live. And then the rest of the picture is how God then cared for Israel. In, in verse 7, I made you flourish like a, a, a plant. In verse 8, when I passed by and saw you, that you were at the age for love, I spread the corner of my garment over you and 
covered your nakedness and made a vow with you and entered a covenant with you, declares the Lord, and you became mine. And you'll just scan your eyes from verse 9 to verse 14, where it just describes this care for the people in using the image of one who is cared for this child that has grown up. I, I, I bathed you. I washed you off. I clothed you. I dressed you. I adorned you. I, I, I gave you every blessing. Verse 13, I gave you fine clothing. And notice the end of verse thing. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty and your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty. And for it was perfect through the splendor that I bestowed upon you, declares the Lord. So you were rejected. You were nothing. God comes along and says, but I had compassion upon you when no one else wanted you. I brought you in. I raised you up. I cleaned you, cared for you, raised you, clothed you, did everything for you to such a degree that you were of of, of such a beauty that it could have been royalty because of the splendor that I put upon you. And you would hope then that would just be the end of the story. And isn't it great what God does for his people that he takes us and here we are and and we're dead in our sins. But God comes in and raises us up and you want that to be the end. And they all lived happily ever after. Verse 15. But (laughs) the rest of this chapter is going to describe what went wrong in verses 15 through 29. Now God is going to identify three critical failures that happened in the hearts of the people that led to them straying away from God. Verse 15, it says there, but you trusted in your beauty. And you will notice, depending on your translation, and you'll say in verse 15, you, you played like a prostitute. It's trying to visualize how um, you've broken this covenant that was made with God. And you have gone about giving yourself to anyone else and everyone else except God. You are unfaithful to him, but choosing to find other lovers, other passions, other desires. And so the, the first picture that's being given here is like in verse 16. You took all of these garments and you made colorful shrines. You can imagine the idolatry that is going on. You took the beautiful jewels, verse 17, and you made for yourselves images and prostituted yourselves to them. And so for every line from verse 15 down starts describing all the gifts and all the blessings That God had given to Israel, whether it be clothing or wealth or jewels or food. And he says, you took everything that I gave you and used them to sin. I was the one who came to you and gave you all of your blessings. I'm the one that has been caring for you. And instead of you using those things to serve me and love me and be committed to me, you have used those things to sin. I want us to even think about that first critical failure for a minute to take the things that God has given to us and use them in a way to then violate God's will. It's quite a a picture. Can you imagine here is a a parent giving a child all of these blessings and, and possessions and wealth and all that they want 
and them turning around and using it against the parent. It's probably one of the greatest insults that you could visualize is taking the good gifts that someone gives you and turn around and using it against them. And that's the first picture that Israel has. And it is a, a, a call of, of sin for us as well. What a grave failure to take the good blessings of God and use them for sin. We take our homes, our cars, our money, our televisions, our computers, our, all of our possessions. And rather than use them in right and righteous ways, we use them to break God's word and break his law. And he says, this is the first problem I'm observing to you is I'm the one that gave it to you. How could you then turn and use those things against me? The second picture, if you jump down to uh, verse 22, and I want you to notice the wording that's given there. And in all your abominations and all of your whorings, you did not remember the days of your youth. When you were naked and bare, wallowing in your blood. I want you to think about that because that is something that the New Testament strikes at over and over again. Is trying to remind us of where we were so that we will never forget how far God has brought us. Here the condemnation as their second critical failure is you forgot what God did for you to give you life. You forgot your prior condition. You think about Ephesians chapter 2, those first three verses of being children of wrath and in our sins. But God who's rich in mercy. What's God always doing? Don't forget your past and don't forget what God has done for you. Because when you forget where you were, you are going to go into sin. And so that's the second picture that is given here is I am the one who had compassion on you. I am the one that has loved you. I'm the one that's rescued you from death. Don't forget that I'm the one who has given you life. And without me, you wouldn't have it at all. And so that's the second picture. First, you trusted in the things that I gave you to use them to sin. Second, you forgot where you came from. You forgot what I did for you. And then third, if you'll notice verse 28 and 29, notice a repetition that happens in verse 28. He says, you played the whore with the Assyrians because you were not satisfied. Yes, you played the whore with them and you were still not satisfied. You multiplied your whorings also with the trading land of Chaldea. And even with this, you were not satisfied. What a, what a third critical picture and failure that is being described here is he says, you weren't content with what I gave you. I'm the one that gave you your wealth and possessions. I'm the one that gave you life. I'm the one that gave you the land. I'm the one that's caring for you. And you were not satisfied with that. But what's really fascinating is so they go into sin and they break God's law and they put their trust in other nations and they make alliances and they're trusting in their own beauty. And did that make them any happier? No. <laughs> he says, you did all that and you still weren't satisfied. And you didn't learn from that. And he says, so then you did it again. And you did it with the Babylonians and you still weren't satisfied. This is the very nature of sin. Have we, have we noticed that this is a characteristic of sin? It doesn't satisfy and we just keep trying. We just keep going. 
We just figure, well, next time it's going to be satisfying. Next time it's going to to pay off. Next time it's going to be worth it. Next time it's going to give me what I'm looking for. And God is saying, if you're not going to be content with me, you're not going to be content anywhere. You're not going to find it out there. It's not going to give it to you. And so God is saying, you had everything with me. I gave you everything you needed and you chose not to be content. Uh, And you wonder why. You have the Apostle Paul and others often writing saying, please be content with what you have. Please be satisfied in the things that God has given you, because when you're not, it's going to make you walk from God and you're not going to find it out there. It's not going to get any better out there. Be satisfied. Choose to be content with what God has provided for you. And so these are the three critical failures that that are identified. But he's going to now describe why this is. Let's get underneath these three choices. What has ultimately happened? I want you to notice the wording of verse 30, because it is it is interesting that God comes in and says, let me now dig a little deeper so you can really see the problem. And he just simply you can imagine a doctor coming in and saying these words. Verse 30 The heart is sick. That's the problem. The reason you have not remembered me, the reason you're not content, the reason you have put your hope and your trust in the physical things and in this world is he says, your heart is sick. And I think this is really important. We're in a time right now where the problem is with everybody else but ourselves. Have you noticed that? The, the problem is with God. You know, he, he's, God's a mess. He just doesn't do anything right. And God always messes everything up. Or the problem's with you. You know, you, it, things you do. And if you didn't do all these things, then I would be so much happier. The problem is with everybody else. You know, I've got my life all figured out and you all are the problem. And I want you to notice he says, actually, you're the problem. Your heart is sick. It's not everybody else. It's not God. It's you. Your own heart is sick. And that's ultimately the problem. And I want you to notice how he illustrates this this picture. Because what he does is he uses this adultery prostitution image again. And notice he describes like in verses 33 and 34, you trying to just find your joy and happiness in every sin. But he describes it in an amazing way. He says in verse 34, he says, you're playing this role and you're giving payment while no payment was given to you. Okay. (laughs) So you're not getting anything out of your sin. You're not putting your hope in God. You're not content in him. You're chasing after your passions and your desires and your lusts and your wants. And he says, you realize something. You're not getting anything back out of that. That is the fast summary of of Ecclesiastes right there. This is chasing the wind. You're going after these things and it never pays off. It never gets you what you think. I've used those illustrations all the time. It's going to be the car, right? That's going to make it all better. It's going to be the job. That's going to make it all better. It's going to be some particular thing in your life and that's going to make it all better. And it never does. And that's what he's saying is you keep taking all of my blessings, throwing them into sin, and you're not getting anything back. It's absolutely upside down. No payment received. 
It's backward. Who would do such a thing? And that's the visual he tries to use of what this worldliness ultimately looks like before God. And so he just says, you're going to have the deeds returned back on your head. You know, when you think about that, that's exactly what happens. What are the things that we get in return for our sins and idolatry? Uh, Guilt, pain, inflicting harm on other people, uh, emptiness. You never get back what you're paying out. And that's what he says. You're paying out, never getting anything back. And so ultimately, this is coming back upon your heads. Now, if you want something shocking, we haven't even got shocking yet. Look at verse 44. Oh, my. So he uses and says in verse 44, I want you to see that this proverb He says in verse 45, you are the daughter of your mother who loathed her husband and her children. And you are the sisters of your sisters who loathe their husbands and their children. Your mother was a Hittite and your father was an Amorite. Okay, what are you saying, Lord? Verse 46, your elder sister is Samaria who lived with her daughters to the north of you. And your younger sister who lived to the south of you is Sodom with all her daughters. Okay, so he's going to use a picture and he says, All right, so let's visualize the people of God here in Judah. He says, you have two sisters, one north of you, Israel, Samaria is another name for that. And then to the south of you, he says, we're going to call them them Sodom. All right, those were two really wicked groups of people. And he says in verse 47, not only did you walk in their ways and do according to their abominations, Within very little time, you were more corrupt than they in all your ways. As I live, declares the Lord God, your sister Sodom and her daughters have not done as you and your daughters have done. Behold, this was the the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride and excess of food and prosperous ease and did not aid the poor and the needy, but did not aid the poor and the needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me. So I removed them when I saw it. Samaria has not committed half your sins, and you have committed more abominations than they, and have made your sisters appear righteous by all the abominations you have committed. All right. If you say... That you make Sodom look righteous. You got problems. <laughs> what a picture. You made Israel and Sodom look like they were rocking it in terms of righteousness. That's how bad you are. And the message that is coming along here is saying, how did you not learn from them? One, God destroyed them. God had already destroyed Israel. Assyrians had wiped them out. Sodom is destroyed along with the other cities for their wickedness. Why would you think that God is not going to judge this kind of behavior? And what he's describing is because you didn't care. And that, my friends, might be one of the scariest things that could ever happen in your life. Is to not care about sin anymore. That the thing you're doing just doesn't even move the needle of the conscience anymore. Just don't care. That's where they got to. They just don't care. This is he's identifying why the heart is sick. You just don't even care about your sins. You're out sinning Sodom and it doesn't even matter to you anymore. You're doing worse than they. 
And so here is God saying that certainly your heart is sick. Now, here's a a big question. I want you to zero in on on verse 52 for a minute because we need to talk about what's going to turn in this section where the gospel comes in. In verse 52, bear your disgrace, you also, for you have intervened on behalf of your sisters because of your sins in which you have acted more abominably than they. They are more in the right than you. So be ashamed, you also, and bear your disgrace, for you have made your sisters appear more righteous. Now, here's my question, because this is going to come up quite a bit in the rest of this section of the back half of this lesson. These are a shameless people. They don't care about their sins. You're out sinning Sodom. You're out sinning Samaria. You're doing whatever you want to do. How is God going to make a shameless people ashamed of their sins? That seems like quite a problem, doesn't it? Here's a people who are so steeped in their sins that they're making Sodom look righteous. And God says, you need to be ashamed and bear the disgrace. Well, how's that going to happen? And I want you to think about the reality of this question for a minute because it is a very important and big question for our culture today because we now live in a culture in a time that has removed all shame. It doesn't matter what you want to do. I should be proud of what I want to do and not be ashamed. We have just torn shame from the fabric as if shame is a sin. Don't be ashamed of who you are. Don't be ashamed of what you do. And I want you to see that God's going to come along and he's going to say, actually, you need to be ashamed. It is really, really important that you are ashamed because if you're not, the gospel cannot work. And that's what the back end of this section does. Shame is needed so that the gospel can work. Watch what God says He's going to do three pictures of how he's going to cause a shameless people to experience shame. Verse 53, and I hope your jaw just hits the ground when you read this verse. I will restore their fortunes, both the fortunes of Sodom and her daughters and the fortunes of Samaria and her daughters, and I will restore your own fortunes in their midst so that they may bear your disgrace and be ashamed of all you have done, becoming a consolation to them. Did you catch what he just said? He says, here's what I'm going to do so that you'll be ashamed. I'm going to restore your fortunes. God says, I'm going to do good by you even when you don't deserve it. I'm going to accomplish such good that it's going to be stunning that you will be ashamed of that. Let me just ask, you've probably had that happen, right? Just in general in life where you've maybe talked bad about somebody or did something bad against someone. And then they come along and do something really, really nice to you. And you're like, oh boy. Uh, you know, shut my mouth. I should have never said that. Uh, I, I feel within me a guilt and a shame because here I was saying something or thinking something or doing something against this person. And all they've done is just reverse that and have just been overflowing with kindness. And God says, that's what I'm going to do. 
is essentially what we call kill them with kindness. Even though they are shameless in their sins, I'm going to restore their fortunes. I'm going to do good. I'm going to bless them. And did you notice who, did you notice it wasn't just Judah that was being blessed? Did you catch that in, in verse 53? I hope your jaw really hit the ground when it said, he's going to restore also the fortunes of Sodom. Can he do that? <laughs> you think, can you do that? Is that okay that you're going to do that? I want you to see that God's giving this first picture that he will redeem any people. It doesn't matter how far the sins are, how deep the sins are, how bad the sins are, how extensive the sins are. God is able to redeem a people that even the people of Judah would look at Israel and go, oh, they're terrible. And God goes, well, I'll redeem them. Well, Sodom, there's no way, right? No, I'll redeem them too. I'll restore their fortunes. You can't out God here in this of what God wants to do in restoring blessings and restoring his people. And that great forgiveness is supposed to put shame within us so that we'll stop going after those sins. You see how God's trying to use shame in a positive way? God's not saying, I don't want you to be ashamed so you leave me and never come back. No, no, no. I want my goodness to be so overflowing that in your sinning, you will feel the shame and you'll stop because I've been so good to you because you see that even in what you've done, I'm bringing you back and I'm restoring you. I'm loving you and blessing you. First picture of what God will do. Second, look at verse 59. For thus says the Lord God, I will deal with you as you have done. You have despised the oath in breaking the covenant. Yet I will remember my covenant with you in all the days of your youth. And I will establish for you an everlasting covenant. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you take your sisters, both your elder and your younger. And I give them to you as daughters, but not on account of the covenant with you. Second picture. He says in verse verse 59, You have despised the oath and completely forsaken the covenant. You have broken God's laws. And what's God going to do about that? He goes, well, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to remember the covenant. You forgot it. You despised it. You didn't care for it. You hated it. And God says, I'm going to remember this covenant And I want you to notice what he says he's actually doing there in verse 60. Not only is he going to remember his covenant with his people, but he says there in verse 60, I'm going to establish for you an everlasting covenant. You hear the messianic foreshadowing. We're going to have Christ come and he's going to establish this everlasting covenant. You don't care about God's ways, but I'm going to remember my faithfulness. I'm going to keep my word. I'm going to keep my promises. I'm going to make a covenant with you. And did you notice the reason why? Verse 61, then you will remember all your ways and do what? Be ashamed. He's using shame again in a positive way and saying, I'm going to remember my covenant and you're going to be brought into this everlasting covenant. And what that's supposed to do is that you would be ashamed of your sinning. 
Instead of rejecting my laws and rejecting my covenant, you're going to embrace my covenant because you're going to see the goodness of what I am offering to you. And so God's goodness is being portrayed as a guardrail to keep us from sinning. I'm doing good for you. I'm doing good for you. Don't go that way. See the good that I'm offering you. And be ashamed of the sin so that you'll turn back to his love. And third, verse 62. And I'll establish my covenant with you and you shall know that I am the Lord, that you may remember and be confounded and never open your mouth again because of your shame. When I atone for you all for all that you have done, declares the Lord God. Unbelievable. Third thing God says he's going to do. And I'm going to atone for your sins. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to remember my covenant and establish it with you. I'm going to restore your fortunes and do good by you. And I'm going to forgive your sins. Friends, I love that God says, I'm going to show so much mercy and grace to you that it's going to shut your mouth. Did you catch that? (laughs) What are you going to say against God? What, what possible complaint can there be with the God who says, in the depths of your sinning, I will restore your fortunes, remember your covenant, and atone for your sins. What are you going to argue back with? He says, I'm going to atone for your sins so that you won't have a word to say. And notice he says the same thing in verse 63 when he says, and that'll make us ashamed for what we've done. That God wants us to feel guilt and shame for our sins. And one of the worst things that we can have happen to us personally with our own consciences is to no longer feel that. And to proclaim that there is some kind of goodness about not feeling ashamed is completely against the word of God. That God has put that within us for a purpose so that we would come to this amazing offer of grace. That is what that's intended to do. That guilty conscience, that weighing of sin, that feeling that you have when your stomach hurts and you're like, oh man, that's bad. Shouldn't have done that. That was awful. God is using that so that you will run to him because he's saying, I'll restore your fortunes. I'll remember the covenant. I'll atone for your sins, but I need you to come back to me. Yeah, I need you to come back. I need you to see how much I care about you. And what a picture. How do you know God cares? Go back to those first 14 verses. Because when you were laying in the field and no one had any compassion for you and cared about you in your life, God did. And that's one of the great truths of God's word. You can have the whole world hate you, but God doesn't. You can have everybody reject you, but God's there. You can have everything that you've put your hope and trust in disintegrate around you, but God still has compassion for his people. As bad as these people had sinned, he said that they made Sodom look good. And God says, and I'll restore your fortunes, I'll remember the covenant, and I'll atone for your sins. And I'll just ask, if he can do that for them, can he do it for us? If he can say that Sodom can enjoy the same blessings then so can we. Because the whole message is that God is in the business of healing sick hearts to deliver us from disgrace 
so that we would enjoy the amazing blessings that come in his love. Let the emptiness of life, the pain of sin, and the guilt of our actions move us to return to a God who wants us back. I hope we will delete forever from our minds because of a chapter like this, that you cannot do something which God says, you know what, Uh, okay, the five trillionth time you've sinned, I'm now done. You can't. He will always receive you back. And if he'll take back the people of Judah, and he'll take back the people of Israel, and he would even take back Sodom, he'll take back you because God is in the business of healing sick hearts. Let shame lead us back to God who restores, who remembers, and who atones. Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, this is a staggering picture of good news. And Lord, who are we that that you care for us like this? That Lord, we would take everything that you've done for us and throw them away into sin. That we use our possessions for sin. We use our wealth for sin. We do so many things in this life that show that we have no regard for you. And even still, you have told us that you'll remember your covenant, restore our fortunes, and atone for our sins. Lord, thank you for your faithfulness. And forgive us for our unfaithfulness. You are the only one who cares. You are the one that brought us from nothing and has blessed us richly. You have taken us from slavery to sin and set us free. You have taken away darkness and brought us to light. And Lord, I pray that we would never forget what you've done. That we would never trust in our riches and our blessings and our wealth. And Lord, I pray that we would be satisfied in all that you've given us and that we'd be satisfied in this relationship with you. Lord, I pray that you'd impress upon our hearts that there is no greater joy or satisfaction outside of you and that we would truly enjoy all that you have to offer as we seek to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. What a gospel picture of how much God cares for you. And I hope that it will move you today to be renewed, to follow him with all of your heart and to serve him faithfully. And if we can help you do that in any way today, to become more faithful to him, to turn from sin, to encourage you to walk with God more, we would love to do that. You can come now or let us know afterward while we stand and while we sing.